This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Uh, hi, my name is John Sharbach. For those of you who haven't uh, met me before, I'm a member at Providence Church, which is a, a church here in town, downtown near the university. And um, it's, uh, I, I get to preach here occasionally um, for, for Corey and Mike, and uh, it's just a great honor to be here. Um, for those of you who were here last time I was here, um, we're, we talk, we've been talking about, um, or one of the things that we, I talked about was this idea of old wine, old, new wine and old wineskins, which is a metaphor uh, that Christ himself uses for his own ministry. And, and the idea, essentially, I think, I'm not an expert in, in wine or wineskins, is that you have um, a nice, fresh, uh, piece of, you know, I don't know, cow skin or something, leather, they say, and they, you fill it with wine that's unfermented, and in the wine skin, it'll ferment, and it'll expand, and it'll stretch it out, um, and, and then once it's stretched out, um, it really has no more elasticity left, and so, if you, so then you have old wines and an old wine skin, which is great, uh, but then if you have new wine that hasn't yet been fully fermented, and you pour it into that already stretched out wine skin, as it ferments and puts off gas, there's no more place for it to expand, and so it bursts. And so this is, uh, this is the metaphor that Christ used to talk about kind of ideas and concepts in his ministry, that you can't just take these new ideas of the new covenant and stick them into old categories for thinking. Otherwise, it'll stretch it out, and things won't quite fit, and the wineskin will explode, and you'll be very confused, and it's just sort of a messy affair. And so he says, well, you should get that new wine goes into new wineskins. And so that's a lot of what the first half of Christ's ministry is about, is just saying, hey, let's fill up these new wineskins. Let's, let's replace the old wineskin with new wineskins so that we can put, let's replace the old categories with new categories so we can put new ideas into these new categories. And uh, we've talked, you know, a few, about a few of those things, but um, you know, now this week we're really going to dive into the big category shift that happened. So if you've um, been coming here for a while, uh, there's been a series in Mark. They did the first half of Mark, um, which is more focused on the question of who is Jesus, kind of Mark one through Mark eight, and then we t- took a break to do a series about abiding in Christ, and. Uh, now picking up the second half of Mark which is more focused on answering the question what did he come to do so the first half who is Jesus the second half what did he come to do and um, as we dive back into Mark we sort of get this 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 problematic uh, verse and and this is not going to be a sermon on Mark 8 but the verse in, in, in Mark 8 verse 31 I think is very telling and the, and the verse is um, that basically he begins to teach. So he's just, you know, I'm the Messiah. Peter's like, you're the Messiah. You're, you're the Son of God. And he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and be crucified and re- rejected and killed. And, and Peter's response is, no way. Like, far be it from you, Lord, that these things would happen to you. This will never happen to you. And Jesus is not like, oh, foolish Peter. He's like, get behind me, Satan. Um, which is, it seems like a very sharp rebuke. And then he adds to that, for your mind, you're setting your mind on the things of God, 
but not on the things of man. And so there's a lot more to be said about Mark 8.31, and we can say that in another time. Uh, the problem that we want to unpack is just with this phrase, son of man, which Jesus has been using throughout Mark. And, and what does that mean? What's the old wineskin, and what's the new wineskin? And the answer we find is actually going to be way back in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to just read a, a portion of Daniel chapter 7 for us, uh, and, and, and then I'll help us get more situated with it. And I'm going to start in Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, the thrones were... I'll give you guys a second to turn there, actually. So Daniel's about halfway through. Uh, if you go to Obadiah, you're too far. It's after Ezekiel. Okay? Um, give everyone a second to get there. Daniel 7. As I looked, the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hairs of his head were like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out of from before him, and thousands upon thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion were taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and, a, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So this, this text in Daniel 7 is going to help us to understand what the old category is going to help us to understand the new category. And, um, it's, and then in doing so, it's also going to help us grapple with the ways in which we struggle with this old category and the new categories, and the ways in which we, like Peter, sort of stumble over who Jesus is. Um, and we stumble over Jesus, I think, because we think in the wrong categories. Um, number one, we stumble over Jesus because our old category is too mundane, too ordinary. And number two, we stumble over Jesus because the new category is too glorious. We stumble over Jesus because the old category is too mundane and the new category is too glorious. And before we really dive into the, the, the heart of the sermon, I, it, it's important just to take some time, a brief parenthesis, to get situated in the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel is not like a super popular book. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's a 6th century B.C. book, so it's written uh, during the transition between two great empires, the Babylonian Empire, which is modern-day Iraq, and the, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, which is modern-day Iran. And um, the Jews are living in exile at this time, and it's sort of split into two parts. And the first part I think most people are familiar with, it's like the fun stories about, I mean, not so fun because they're living in exile, but it's the fun stories of living in exile. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It's you know, Daniel and the lion's den, the kind of stuff that you, know, you teach your kids in the kids' ministry. 
Um, but the second half of the book of Daniel is like a bunch of visions, just kind of all squished together. And they're all kind of the same vision in different ways, and they're same, but they're about like the rise of empires and the fall of empires and the end of the exile, the restoration of Israel, and then the end times. And so Daniel 7 is the first of those visions. Um, there's, a, there's an earlier vision, I think, in Daniel 2, but that's embedded within a story. Daniel 7 is the first real, like, Daniel sat down and had a vision. And there's two parts. There's the vision itself in verses 1 through 14, um, which we read some of. And then there's the interpretation of the vision in verses 15 through 28. And so the subject matter of this vision is sort of the, the succession of four earthly empires. You have the, the Babylonian empire, and the Babylonian empire is swallowed up by the Medo-Persian empire. And then the Medo-Persian empire is swallowed up by Alexander the Great and the Greek empire. And then you have this fourth empire, and it's kind of like, well, who are they? You know, they, they could be the Seleucid Empire. Um, they could be the Roman Empire. And what we know from the text is that they're very violently opposed and arrogantly opposed to God and to his people. And then we get this vision of the throne room of God, and we have these two sort of characters. We have the, the Ancient of Days, who is the Father, God the Father sitting upon his throne, and everyone's, all the, everyone's serving and worshiping him. And then we have this other figure, one like a son of man, who's presented before the Father and, and found worthy. And then he's given, the Son of Man is given this eternal kingdom. And so you have these two big questions embedded in the text. And the first question is, who is this fourth empire or the fourth beast? Um, and the second question is, who is the Son of Man? And what we'll see is that those two questions actually fit very nicely into uh, the main burden or main point of this text which is that we stumble over Jesus because we think in the wrong categories. That we stumble over Jesus because our old category is too mundane. That The old wineskin is basically we're looking at the fourth beast, the fourth empire, and we're expecting another earthly mundane empire. But the new wineskin is that God is destroying the source of all evil in the world. That he's not just offering us temporal deliverance, but he's offering us spiritual deliverance. And then we stumble over Jesus because the new category is too glorious. The old category is like, hey, the Son of Man must be like David 2.0. Um, you know, great King of Israel, Messiah, you know, anointed one in that sense. But the new category is the Son of Man is all of those things, yes, but he's also God become flesh. Um, and so that's how the, and so let's, let's just unpack those two things today. Um, we stumble over Jesus because our old categories are too mundane. That we're hoping for temporal, like worldly deliverance from worldly troubles. Um, but God is offering us eternal deliverance from all spiritual troubles. And so the, the point here, I think, is that the fourth beast is any human ruler, any human government that usurps God's authority and demands our worship. And so it's sort of like a repeated pattern throughout history. Um, yes, there will be an ultimate representation of this beast that we see in Revelation, but uh, it's more, it's, it's just sort of like, okay, you know, the, the, the commentators are split in some sense between these two answers. There's two possible earthly answers they go down. One is the Seleucid Empire, which is a, a second century BC 
It's led by a guy with a great name, very evil, named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And in, in 167 BC, he conquers Jerusalem. He desecrates the temple by sacrificing a pig there. Um, he outlaws Jewish religious practices, and he um, orders the copies of the law destroyed. And then he's struck down by a horrible disease and dies in agony. Uh, and so he's the subject of the book of Maccabees. And the other candidate is the Roman Empire. And in, in 63 BC, Pompey takes Jerusalem. Um, they install the client king. They set up kind of the regime that's in place at the beginning of the New Testament. And, um, and then following an uprising, but, uh, it, it, General Titus in 70 AD just sacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple. And then the Roman Empire sort of becomes a more of a persecuting empire and waves of persecution towards Christians for the next several centuries. And the, 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 the question is, okay, which one of these is it? And the answer is neither, I think. The answer is, or put differently, let's put it differently, the answer is both of them. That the, the, the fourth beast, uh, each of these are patterns or types or symbols of the fourth beast. That the fourth beast is any human government that sets up in opposition to God and demands our, our worship. Um, and it's a sort of repeating pattern throughout history. And okay, so where am I getting this from? This sounds like a bit of a stretch. Let's prove your point, John. Um, well, part of the point is just in how apocalyptic literature works. So Daniel and the book of Revelation are examples of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. And um, Don Carson, who's the president of the Gospel Coalition and uh, expert in New Testament uh, theology, he sort of, he describes apocalyptic literature as symbol-laden literature. Uh, it's symbols, it's patterns, it's numbers. Like the numbers don't mean like actual numbers or like represent ideas. And you know, you have lampstands and stars and the lampstands are churches and the stars are, you know, you know uh, it's like kind of stuff like that. Like it, the, it's not one-to-one -one correlation. It's sort of like Revelation 13 conflates um, all four beasts that we get. We get these four beasts in Daniel 7, and Revelation just packs them all together in, in, verse, in chapter 13. And then it replaces that beast with another beast that does the same thing. And then we get another beast in Revelation 17. And it's like, it's just almost as if we're going in cycles, going around and around and around, that these beasts are representative of human governments without being representative of any particular government. That yes, there's a final beast in the future, but it's more just this pattern of history which is that we want to give our allegiance to humans. We want to serve humans. We want to be protected by humans. We want to place our trust in humans. And that's the pattern that God is, is working against. It's sort of cycling around. People set themselves up in the place of God. They blaspheme God. Some of us go to serve them and worship him. And, and, then, and then God will come and, and, and deliver this. So, okay, so the, the, where I'm getting that from Daniel 7 is we see in Daniel 7, we have these four ordinary, three, three ordinary empires or beasts. Uh, and we said that the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and the Greeks, and that's pretty much clear. Um, so I won't spend a lot of time there, but we have this fourth, and it's different, and we'll look at verse 7. It says, the, uh, Behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, had a great iron teeth and devoured and broken pieces and stamped on what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts from, that were before it. So it's, it's different from all the other beasts. It's exceedingly dreadful. It's exceedingly strong. 
Revelation 13 kind of says, this is the kind of beast that you can kill, deliver a moral wound to its head, and it'll just keep going. It'll come back. Um, and so, the, you know, the Romans and the Seleucids are both strong, and, and they kind of fit that pattern. But, you know, verse 21 says um, that as I looked, this horn, which is a, a part of the fourth beast, made war with all the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days come. So it's making war with the saints, it's prevailing over them. Verse 23, uh, it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down into pieces. So, you know, the Roman Empire was pretty big, it wasn't that big. And um, it shall speak words against the Most High, verse 25, shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And they shall change the times and the laws and they shall give, be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So this sounds like these two empires, but it also sounds like something else. And one of the images that you can use to think about this is sort of like a, a mountain range. And a lot of times biblical prophecy works like a mountain range. You look out on the mountain range and you see mountains in the foreground and mountains behind them and mountains, and mountains on mountains on mountains. And it's very hard for us to tell exactly how far all the mountains are from one another and kind of how it all fits together. Um, from our perspective, and obviously there'll come a day where it all makes much more sense. But that's, I think, part of what's going on here. Um, that it's, 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 we can't, we don't, we don't have the full perspective, because that's not God's purposes in these, in these books. Um, it's more to give us the big ideas that we can kind of mull over and think about. Um, and then also notice that ultimately in every case, God will deliver his people. And we see this total deliverance in verse 26. The court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, that's the beast's dominion, shall be taken away, and to be consumed and destroyed in the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the heavens under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion shall be taken away and serve him. And so this pattern that we see, or this, this, this seemingly unstoppable final beast, will be destroyed. And God will put an end to that. And, and so that, that, should give us, that should give us great hope because it's not just this, um, to, it's not just deliverance from the Seleucid Empire or the Roman Empire or whatever, you know, whoever's making us unhappy at the moment, but it's this total deliverance from the source of evil, from sin, from Satan, from death. Um, you know, we see that the Son of Man doesn't just come to cast out the Romans, which is what people are hoping for. The Son of Man comes to cast out Satan and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the power behind this repeating cycle, the power behind the fourth beast is cast out. And then we know from Revelation 20 that the power behind the fourth beast, this repeating cycle, will ultimately be destroyed. Um, and so one way to think about it is that the kingdom of Satan is sort of like cancer. You have the kingdom of God, and it's a healthy, you know, uh, human. And uh, the kingdom of Satan comes in, and it's like a twisted version of, a, of what's, what's healthy. Like your cells are doing what they're supposed to be doing, kind of, but they're doing it way too much. Um, and they're not stopping, and they're not kept in right proportion. And it sort of spreads throughout the whole body, and it infects and corrupts different parts of it. And um, it can be treated, to be sure, but when you treat it, you usually send it into remission. It's, it's hard to cure it completely. And so you'll, you'll look at the remission, you know, you'll treat it, you'll go into remission for a few years, and then, you know, in many cases, it'll, it will come back. Um, and so we, we, we hope for treatment, but 
and we, we don't really dare to hope for complete, that it would be completely cured. Um, and we don't really hope for this idea of like, you know, immortality or something like that. But the, the promise of God is complete victory. That's the promise of the gospel. It's not, hey, you're not going to be fighting this constant battle of, oh, it goes into remission. Oh, you're okay for a while. Oh, it comes back. Oh, you got to go back, you know, cut it out again. Um, but that the cause of the cancer, the power behind the throne, the, 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 the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, the scripture says, will be cast out completely and the cycle will be broken and will be, will be delivered from this body of death and be, will put on imperishable bodies and live with God forever free from sin, from Satan, and from death. Which sounds like a pretty good promise if we can keep our perspective right. Now, of course, the problem is, as we begin to apply this part of the text, it's very difficult to keep our perspective right. So the disciples' problem, which was Israel's problem, which is that their hopes are set too low. Right? They're hoping for worldly deliverance from the Romans because the Romans are the big problem right in front of them. They're not very nice people, um, as governments go, and um, they, they want Christ to come in and get rid of them. They say, bring us back. Bring us back to Solomon and David and all these great kings. And they're just thinking too low because they can't get past the immediate problem. They, their minds are set on the things of man. Their minds are not set upon the things of God. They think what they need is the next earthly victory, the next worldly deliverance, um, they think if they can just get past these present circumstances, whatever they are, that things are going to be okay. And I think we're sort of the same way, that we need to reset our expectations, that we are so focused, so short-sighted on the next problem that's right in front of us. Uh, we need to adjust our focus. We need to adjust our hope. We need to take our minds off the things of the world, the things like, hey, my career Maybe it's going well, maybe it's going poorly. Or my riches, maybe I have them, maybe I don't. Um, or peace and comfort. You know, maybe, maybe things are going well, maybe things are, are struggling. Or political deliverance. Oh, the wrong person is in this office, and if I can only get the right person into this office, then everything would be you know, okay. And this is sort of like Satan's big lie, that if everything is just so, if your circumstances are okay, if the Romans are gone, uh, then things will, things will be, you'll, you'll be happy. Things will be, con you'll be content. Things will be okay. And it's sort of this permutation of this, this lie that he presents, which is, hey, worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And, you know, I think Christ exposes the short-sightedness of this by saying, like, hey, what, is it, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And I think the, the sad thing about this promise that Satan's making. It's like, we're not even, like, our soul, like, nah, we're like, okay, that's, yeah, how about just way down here, like, something much less value, like, I, I can get the whole world, or I can just, you know, like, oh, I want to be a vice president here at this company, or something like that, like, we're, we're, we trade our souls, I think, for um, a lot less than they're worth, and we shouldn't trade them for anything, right, that's the, that's the point, but we just so locked in on this short-sighted, like, ah, if I just, just get through to the next thing, um, and so I think the, the antidote is to set our minds on the things of God, if we don't set our mind on the things of the world, we do set our mind on the things of God. And we kind of trust that, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That God is preparing us for his eternal kingdom. 
And yes, that means there's hope for today that God will deliver us from our immediate circumstances in one way or another. Um, And there's hope for tomorrow that God will deliver us from ultimate difficulties. And so what what we need to do is just sort of hold on tight. Like, we don't, you know, like, uh, this doesn't make any sense to me. This plan is really crazy. The Messiah is going to die and going to defeat Satan that way. I don't get it. And we're just like, well, just, hey, chill out, Peter. Just hold on tight. Hold on tight. We'll see. God's got a plan for this. Um, and we don't have to understand it because it's, it's, it's greater than we can think. And so we need to take this old category of hoping for worldly deliverance, this short-sighted hope, toss it out. And we need to replace it with a new category, which is our ultimate hope is fixed upon uh, the, the, the ultimate final deliverance that comes through Christ. The new heavens and the new earth, inheriting with Jesus, co-heirs of all creation, co-regents of all creation, and ruling forever in glory with him. And in doing so, we sort of remove that first stumbling block to Jesus, that our hopes are too mundane. It's like, how is Jesus relevant to my life? You know, uh, but then we have the second stumbling block. In some sense, it's much bigger, which is that we stumble over Jesus because the new category that he's presenting us is, is too glorious. That we're hoping for an earthly deliverer, but God's deliverer, the Son of Man, is more than we can ask or think. The, the Son of Man is both God and man. He is God become flesh. And so we have in like the, you know, uh, in the Old Testament, the, the phrase son of man, let's just level set here, is actually most often used just to mean a regular man. Like it's used that way in Psalm 8 in the first sentence, although Hebrews, the author of Hebrews will quote it in a, in a different sense. It's certainly used that way in Ezekiel, in like chapter 2, chapter 3, the beginning of every chapter. Uh, and it's the contrast between us and God. You know, God is God, and we're just the, we're just the son of man, the son of Adam, and and so Daniel uses this title for the Messiah. However, and he certainly means that the Messiah is a man; he is a son of man. Yes, but he's also much more than that. So, how do we get that from this text? Well, look at verse thirteen. It says, "I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man." And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So he comes with the clouds of heaven, sort of like an angel or something like that, and he's presented before the Father, and watch this. The Father's like, oh, cool, great. Right? It's, not like, it's not like Isaiah in the throne room of God, of like, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips, I can't, you know, I can't even be in your presence. Um, with none of that drama, it's almost as if this guy, is, this son of man, is worthy to be in the presence of the Father. And in fact, Revelation teaches us that he is worthy to be, uh, he's, he's the only one worthy to be in the presence of the Father. Um, but then look at verse 14. It says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, one which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So in, back in verse 10, thousands upon thousands are serving the ancients of days, the Father. And down in verse 14, all the people of the earth are going to be serving this, this Son of Man. And moreover, he's going to have a universal kingdom. It's going to be eternal kingdom. And he's going to get glory. Okay? He's going he's to be given glory. And this is to say, this guy is being given glory, but God's the God. God the Father is the God who in Isaiah 42 
verse 8, says, I, I don't give my glory to anyone else. My glory I give to no other. And yet his glory is being given to this Son of Man. And then Psalm 2 talks about how the Son of Man or the Messiah is going to rule the earth and we're going to take our refuge in him. Like, well, that's kind of weird. That's like language we normally use to talk about the, the Father taking refuge in him. And so these texts are hinting at something that's much more glorious uh, for how we understand the Messiah. And it's sort of like we're in Mark. Jesus has been teaching us this very slowly. He's been unfolding this idea of the Son of Man. He's been gradually and gently and carefully giving us, hey, here's, here's the new wineskin. Check this out. Um, he's humble, yes, gentle and lowly and humble of heart, but he's also an exalted one. And so we see the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, Mark 2. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, also Mark 2. The Son of Man will divide humanity for judgment, Mark 8. The Son of Man will give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10. The Son of Man will return with the clouds of heaven, Mark 14. That Jesus has such an exalted view of the Son of Man that when he claims to be the Son of Man in, the, in, in, in Mark 14, they're like, kill this guy. He's a blasphemer. Um, everyone's expecting David 2.0. They sort of want a man who trusts God like David, a man who fights like David, a man who leads like David, a man who prophesies like David. But you know what the problem with that is, right? Then you get a man who sins like David, who abuses power like David, who dies like David. And instead, they don't get David 2.0, they get God himself become flesh. The creator injects himself into the creation through the incarnation to do what we cannot do ourselves. We cannot save ourselves, and so God takes that burden upon himself. And so we, we see, in, just as an example, in Revelation 1, we see the Son of Man actually gets conflated with the Ancient of Days. That The Son of Man is described as having hair like wool, just like the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man is described as eyes that are flaming fire, uh, face that shines like the sun. He has the keys to death and to life, and he's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. The Son of Man is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, and he comes to give us life by laying down his life, and by his death, he conquers death. And that's sort of this mystery of Mark 8. They're like, what? Like, this is like such a, it's so far out. It's so counterintuitive and runs counter to everything we as humans, I think, would naturally believe. And it reveals the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, that the exalted God visits his people by humbling himself to take the form of a servant, and the king serves us in death so that we can serve him in worship and obedience. And the author of life, the, the living God, lays down his life so that Sinners who are formed from dust can live forever by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And it's just this total inversion of everything that, the, that we would naturally think about how God works. If you look at other religions and in, in how they cast God in their own image, like gods are powerful and they're doing all this great, you know, like, uh, you know, their God, you know, the world would say, hey, God's going to come and he's just going to kill all of our enemies. And scripture teaches that God will come and he will lay down his life for his enemies. And, and so this is, I think, why Peter says, hey, far be it from you, Lord, that these things would ever happen to you. Peter says that because we fix our mind on these earthly, these earthly patterns. But what does scripture say? It says that God hides his wisdom from the wise of this world and reveals it to, to the little children. Um, that's just not, God reveals his character 
in his weakness and his love. Yes, he will be lifted up with the clouds of heaven, but first he must be lifted up in the crucifixion. So, okay, so that's, how does this text then, that's maybe, maybe how it is speaking to Peter, and he's beginning to put these puzzle pieces together and get a, you know, stretch, his, stretch out that wineskin a little bit, and okay, but how does this, how does it speak to us today, right? Because that was 2,000 years ago, now we're here today. Well, I think the text has two things to say to us, okay? So one thing is, is, is for, the, for the non-Christians. There's non-Christians in the room, hey, I'm really glad you're here. I can't think of a better place for you to be, or anywhere I'd rather you be than right here. Um, and I think the text, the, the, the invitation of this text is that we would believe the gospel, um, that Christ laid down his life to atone for our sins so that anyone, anyone who believes can have eternal life. No strings attached. Um, the world says, hey, you've got to work for your salvation. Do some good. God will love you. And that's how you earn favor with God. But the scripture teaches the opposite. The scripture teaches, hey, trust in me for your salvation. Trust in God for your salvation. That apart from God, we can't do anything. Anything good, anything at all. But he already loves us. And so the text is an invitation to believe this crazy upside-down gospel and actually be saved. Um, and it's not hard. It's trust in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, is what Paul says in Acts 16. Now, for the Christians in the room, which obviously I would imagine is most of you, uh, it's, it's to embrace, it's very similar, actually, it's basically the same, embrace the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. Um, that whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That we can imitate God our Father by laying down our lives for others. We can imitate God the Son, our brother, by laying down his life. The God Father Okay, stop. So that's one. Number two, stop trying to build your own kingdom. Start trying to build God's kingdom. We can submit to God in the big things, yes, like, you know, if you feel the urge to give away all your money to the poor as, as a way of following Jesus, good, do that. That's a, that's a good, you know, or if you feel the urge to go do overseas missions and, and pour out your life for God and the missions feel great. Those are good forms of radical obedience, and that's one way to pour your life into God's kingdom. Another way you can pour your life into God's kingdom is to submit to God, or you also need to submit to God in the little things. It, I think it's easy to think like, hey, if I get called, like, okay, I'm, you know, whatever, I'm called, somehow I get called before, you know, and, uh, you know, some people, and like, they say, hey, deny the Lord Jesus or we'll kill you. I think actually most of us would be like, yeah, okay, no way. I'm gonna stick with the Lord Jesus, no thanks. Like, I think actually, in, in a weird way, that's the easier obedience. The, the hard obedience is the little stuff in life. Um, it's like giving of your time to help others. It's things like finding ways to minister and serve one another, uh, finding ways to have awkward conversations about the gospel, finding ways to be open about your faith at work or with your family or in your social life. Um, it's also about giving of your money to help others. You know? uh, it's about supporting the work of the local church. It's about supporting the work of missions, about supporting the works of charity, for those who uh, are in need. And I think it's also, and perhaps most importantly, because this is foundational to everything else, it's about striving for holiness. 
Um, and striving for holiness looks a lot of different ways, but it looks like going to church. That God has created us such that we exist, and it's obviously preaching to the choir because you're all at church right now, but we exist in a matrix of interconnected community and that we exhort one another, we admonish one another, we uh, encourage one another to, to greater holiness. And that one of the means in which we do that is through the church body. The primary means which we do that is the church body. And I mean, going to small groups so you can form real connections with people and not just kind of show up and listen to, you know, sermons on Sunday. And it means uh, existing in community, making friends with people from church and from other churches and submitting to one another in love and submitting to your pastors in love and exhorting and encouraging one another. When you see someone saying, when you see someone else who's doing something you know they shouldn't be doing, not going to be like rebuking them like, ah, but going to them and, and just gently admonishing them, meaning calling to mind what they know is true and what you know is true. Say, hey, you know this isn't right, and, and live, live, live in accordance with God's truth, or confessing your struggle with pornography, or seeking help with your anger, or studying God's truth and letting it reshape your mind. In other words, the way you can apply this text is just asking and answering this simple question, which is, how can I, myself, just a little bit, even just a little bit, die to myself and live to God this week? And the answer will obviously be different for everybody in different contexts, but I think that's the question we should have on our minds. Like, hey, this is where real life is found. Real joy and contentment and happiness and spiritual vitality are found by laying down our lives in service of the kingdom of God. And how can I do that even in a little way this week? Okay? So, our problem is bigger than the next struggle. Our problem is this whole worldly cycle of evil, it's this cancerous kingdom of Satan that's spreading and metastasizing throughout our body. And God's solution is to sort of flip the script. It turns everything upside down and it's encapsulated in this messianic title, the Son of Man. It's, it's, you know, the humanity of it is right there in the name. It's the Son of Man. It's emphasizing Jesus' humanity, yes. And it is also, in Daniel 7, emphasizing his divinity, his eternal kingdom, his glory, his eternal dominion, his, his worthiness, all of these things. And so it, it pulls them together into this, this just, just totally unexpected, upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, the exalted one, becoming humble for our sake to save us. And so the challenge of this text is to help reset our hopes, that we raise our hopes of God's deliverance. It's not just that he's going to deliver me from the next struggle or the you know, the bad people or whatever, but he's going to deliver me from the power of sin, Satan, and death. And it's not just about, and it also raises our hopes of Christ himself. He's not just going to come in and fix some problems and, you know, be David 2.0, but he's going to be, he is, he is, he exists today as the God-man on the throne of heaven and will return one day uh, with the clouds of heaven to judge the living of the dead and to cast out Satan forever and to renew us and you know, in the blink of an eye, will become imperishable and inherit the kingdom. And in doing so, we, if raising our hopes, we see Jesus not as a stumbling block, um, but as our great hope, our only hope, our only hope in life and in death is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Uh, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children, for such was your gracious will. Uh, we thank you that your son, uh, though he is in the form of God, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, uh, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross so that we would 
he would bear our sins, that we would receive your righteousness. We thank you that you love us so much that while we were still your enemies, uh, your son laid down his life for us, and now that we are your children, please help us to believe that in him you will graciously give us all things, and you are preparing us for an incomprehensible uh, inheritance. Settle these truths in our heart through your spirit so that we might rejoice in them and give us strength to imitate you as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Um, for, for those of you who haven't uh, been to Austin Life Church before, uh, you usually use this time as a, t- a space to listen to and respond to the Spirit, his promptings, um, time for personal reflection um, and, and dwelling in Scripture and admonishing and encouraging one another. Um, and, and just letting the Spirit do His work um, that, he, that He has purposed for, for today. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.